Well, amen. COVID-19. Back in 2003, it was called SARS. I don't know how many of you remember that. Uh, Both were coronaviruses. They both originated uh, in the same place. They both had the same symptoms. Um, They had the same demographic that was considered uh, high risk or um, at risk. But uh, this year there are 15 times already, 15 times as many cases. Um, Fortunately, it's to this point only a 5% mortality rate compared to 10%. Back in 03 and 04. And I'm sure you know it's been called a controllable pandemic. And that means that it calls for wisdom and discretion on everybody's part. Uh, all of us included. And it's, it's been prudent for us to put plans in place to, that enable us to do our part. Uh, as we've done tonight. We're trying to do our part to make sure that it doesn't spread as well as to minister to those who are affected by it, have already been affected by it. And at the same time, to attempt to communicate that our trust is in the Lord Jesus. Right? Trying to do both of those things, to find that balance that is necessary. And Because he has not been caught off guard by this at all. He has behind this, he's in the midst of this, he's already ahead of this. And he's using it for his glory and for our good. We may not understand that right now and how that, how that he's doing that, but we believe that he is. And as I mentioned before we started, I'm grateful to our church who have, uh, who, who you've already been involved ministering uh, to both those within our congregation and even your neighbor, um, those outside and, and in the midst of all that's going on, I, I just want to share these things. I sent these to you. Earlier in the week, but I just wanted to read them again because I think um, it's good for us that, that we might be comforted in these days, both uh, from the prophet Isaiah and the psalmist who said, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps us will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. May the Lord comfort us with those words and and others as we encourage one another in his word uh, throughout uh, this time, as long as it may be. But as serious as SARS was in 03 and 04 and as serious as this COVID-19 is today, there has been and continues to be an even more serious pandemic than even those. It's not physical in nature, it's spiritual in nature, and it's what we've been warned about since chapter 2 began in this letter. And it's a pandemic of spiritual apostasy. It's the focus of chapters 2, 3, and 4, and 5, and now here in the beginning of 6. And, but here in the beginning of 6, 
This warning has moved to what one commentator said many call the most terrifying warning of the New Testament. And we're trusting in the timing and the text, right? We've been walking through Hebrews and we find ourselves in circumstances such as we are. And, and again, we knew that none of this has caught the Lord off guard. And, and so we're trusting that his timing and this text are going to work together for our good and to encourage us. There is a note-taking guide in the back of your bulletin. We're looking at the eight verses that Matt read earlier. The outline is going to look like this. We're going to see the writer explain the cure of the dullness of hearing that we talked about last week. We're going to see him acknowledge the control of the Lord. And then finally, we're going to see him make the case against apostasy. Okay, Uh, Explaining the cure for the dullness of hearing, acknowledging the control of the Lord, and making the case against apostasy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we come tonight to one of the most difficult passages of Scripture in the New Testament. So we ask that you would give us ears to hear your word. Uh, Prepare our hearts to receive your word. We're grateful that we can approach uh, the study of it with confidence, knowing that it will not return void because you will, in fact, use it for its intended purpose, which is your glory and the good of your people. I ask that you would remove anything in me that would hinder my delivery and anything in us that would hinder our listening and embracing of the truth. And I pray these things in the more excellent name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, in, uh, we saw last week that the writer began what we called and what is in fact a parenthetical statement. He began that statement because he had made the statement that he, well, he was comparing Christ and Christ's priesthood to Aaron's priesthood. And he was saying that Christ's priesthood is better. And he did so by saying that Christ is, Christ's priesthood is from the order of Melchizedek. And he knew he had to pause because, and he said, they were not going to understand due to the fact that they had become dull of hearing. And it wasn't something that they had always been. It was something that had developed over time. It was something that at one point they had been receptive to the gospel, but now they had become lazy. They were sluggish. They were lethargic. Um, in regards to the hearing as well as their discernment, uh, they were no longer listening. And they were no longer listening to the point that, well, and their lack of attentiveness was such that they weren't even able to teach others as they were supposed to be doing at that point. They were supposed to be teaching others, but instead others needed to be teaching them. And so really as a church, they were being shortchanged because they weren't doing what it was that they should have been doing with one another. And so they weren't being equipped appropriately. They weren't being encouraged by one another. They weren't growing up. As a result, weren't growing up into the head, which is Christ, as Paul says to the Ephesians. And if you remember, I said that they weren't an institution of higher learning. They were actually a nursery. They were feeding upon milk instead of the solid word, uh, the solid food of the word of God. And they didn't need to be taught new things. They simply needed to be taught those things that they had already been taught. That those things that were the ABCs of the faith, those things that were to serve as a foundation upon which other things were to be built And really what had gone on is over time, having been saved or having professed Christ, 
some possessing Christ, others professing Christ, which we'll get to in a moment. They, they had grown up physically and looked older, but they were in fact arrested spiritually. They had stopped growing spiritually. And that all brings us, well, and that needed to change, which brings us to the therefore in verse 1 of chapter 6 and the cure for this dullness of hearing in verses 1 and 2. Since they had become dull of hearing and were spiritually immature and feeding upon milk and instead of eating the solid food of the word, instead of teaching others like they were supposed to, they had to make... The writer is specifically saying to them that they needed to make a conscious decision. It was a decisive decision that needed to be made for them to move on and to grow up. It was very specific. It was very matter of fact. They needed to leave the elementary teaching behind and they needed to move on to their secondary education. The language is such that he's saying that they needed to perfect their competence. Protect their competence in and they needed to complete their spiritual education. They weren't to forget the basics because, again, those basics were foundational and everything else was going to be built on them. But, well, for like our children, as children progress beyond elementary school, they move into their secondary education. But their elementary education is is so very important because everything that follows in middle school and high school is built upon what takes place in elementary school. Latham needs good elementary teachers going before him so that he can build on that foundation. And then he passes them off to the next group. One building block after another. They didn't need to keep laying the same foundation. Can you imagine how silly it would be for builders in our area with all the construction going on if all they did every day was continue to work on the foundation? It really takes away, if we don't build anything upon that foundation, it really, it really changes the, the purpose of the foundation to begin with. The foundation is there so that, that a structure can be built upon it. It's there to support that structure. And so what they needed to do was build on that foundation. And he explains what he says then in verses 1 and 2 is that they need to... To move on from that foundation that's been built. And then he explains what that foundation was. He explains what those ABCs are. And what they are is, and we're going to walk through them, but what they are is simply the, uh, really what they had been catechized in prior to their baptism, which was a common practice at the time. And so there are three of them. The first subject that they went through was repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So they had been taught the importance of changing their their mind regarding their own efforts toward salvation and and their own ability in saving themselves. And they had to come to a point, we're told they were taught, they had to come to a point of agreeing with God that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, that their own works, their own attempts to keep the law were dead works in and of themselves. They were nothing more than self-justification. And that they were never going to accomplish what they believed they were going to accomplish or that they thought they could accomplish. They had been taught that to agree with God that their only hope was in the righteousness of another. Their only hope was in someone else dying in their place as a substitute. They were to look to someone else and his obedience that would be able 
to be, or that would be credited to their account. Of course, they have been taught that that person was the Lord Jesus. He was the only one that could pay for their sins. He was the only one that was perfectly obedient. And so they were ter- from, to turn from themselves, turn to or turn from their sin and turn to Christ. Trust in him. Who was the one and only one through whom their salvation could be accomplished. Well, that was first. That was the first subject. The second subject was instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. It's a little more difficult to understand. And there are a variety of uh, explanations. And And the best way I know to do this is to say that they were instructed regarding the different types of washings, which were numerous, the different types of Jewish, the Jewish traditions and their washings, which were numerous. And they were also taught about the laying on of hands, again, which were numerous, the, the situations in which that took place. And they were instructed on those things and then how those things in particular pointed to and found their true significance In Christian uh, baptism with water and how that baptism pointed to, symbolized and pointed to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what we had was actual instruction on not only the coming of the Holy Spirit and his initiation of uh, those he came upon and their initiation into uh, the covenant community, but also the ongoing equipping An enabling of believers by the Holy Spirit. The third thing was instruction about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So we have, and again, these both of these subjects would have been very familiar to the Jewish community. But the significance of the new for the New Testament church was that it was amplified because Christ was taught as being the one who would, in fact, judge. And Christ himself was the resurrection and the life in whom they would have life and experience that life to come. So really, when we lay it out, it becomes obvious what those foundations were and. And really, we can look at it in, in a couple of ways. One, we see that it could have been very simply they were taught about their justification, their sanctification, their glorification. Or if we wanted to get into more specific doctrines or kind of expand those, we would see that they were taught about soteriology or salvation. They were taught about Christology or about Christ. They were taught pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. And they were taught eschatology, that last things. I think it's kind of all of the above. And what's interesting is that it's those exact things that today people say we don't need to pay attention to. There there are things that we, all those T-I-O-N words and all those doctrines, we don't need to worry about those things. We just need to love Jesus. We need to love Jesus. We need to worship Jesus. You know, doctrine divides. and And the writer of Hebrews says, no, these are the exact things that we need as a foundation. These are the things that are foundational and upon which we grow. Now, but also, he's also not saying that the gospel is something that we're to abandon and to move on from. 
Right? He's not saying that, okay, here are these basics and now we're going to move on. We know, he knew that we need to learn about our justification, sanctification, and glorification. But there's so much about those things that we don't leave them behind. We just continue to grow in them. There are all kinds of things that we need to know about our Christology and our pneumatology and our eschatology and, and our soteriology. And so we don't leave them behind, but we continue to expand and, and, and build upon them. It's important to keep moving ahead because there are unfathomable riches as far as the gospel is concerned. The gospel, there are veins of gospel gold that can never be mined because they run so deep. And the writer is saying we need to progress because, and we need these foundations of the doctrines Because without the foundations of the doctrines, dullness of hearing is bound to occur. And if it's not dealt with, if it persists, apostasy is sure to follow. And then in verse 3, he says something very, very important for us. It's all important, but this is important for us. He says, and this we will do if God permits. So he acknowledges that the control of the Lord. He knows that while it's important for his readers and for us today to make a, a decision and to put forth conscious effort to grow in our faith and to move forward and to understand the Lord and, and the things of salvation, it was, he's saying it's impossible to do on their own. It's not something that they do by themselves. It's the Lord who sanctifies. The Lord sanctifies by the Spirit through the Word of God. And that's why in John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, Sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. He knew that. And as one commentator put it, the key to perseverance and endurance is not some fleeting emotional experience... Not this formula or that program. These are the marks of immature tossing back and forth on the passing waves. Not so the wise or the mature who do not build on shifting sand, but upon the rock that is God's word. That's what Jesus himself taught. Remember in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The Lord has ordained the means of his word. He provides the foundation we need to weather the storms of trials and tribulations and pain and suffering. He has he has provided the foundation that we need Even in the midst of medical pandemics. He's provided what we need to persevere in the midst of those things and to endure to the end. To not fall back. So we don't need platitudes and people's personal opinions or advice regarding how we are to respond. We we need to look to the word of the Lord. Look to the word of God and we need to be prepared to share that word of the God or the word of God with those who are in need in times just like these. But why is that important? 
That's what brings us to the case against apostasy. Look at verse 4. Again, many consider it to be the most terrifying warning in the New Testament. Why should they wake up from their slumber? Why does he say they should deal with their dullness of hearing? Why should they take great pains to change their spiritual diet and to move on from milk to solid food? Why should they focus on growing spiritually and to build upon the foundation of the elementary doctrines? Very simply because spiritually speaking, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. And eventually, there comes a point of no return. If you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. And if you persist in moving backward, there comes a point of no return. And we need to walk through this quickly but carefully. I want us to look at four things. Okay, so the first one is this. We need to understand that this is not a hypothetical argument. Some have suggested that it is, but it's not. We said earlier in our study that the Lord not only ordains the ends of perseverance and preservation, but he also ordains the means. And this passage is a means by which he will persevere and cause us to and will will cause us to uh, persevere and and will preserve us. But just because it is a means to that end does not mean that it's hypothetical. It is not a warning against something that cannot happen. It is, in fact, a warning against something that is real, something that's very dangerous and therefore something that must be warned against. So it's not hypothetical. Secondly, because it's not hypothetical and because it is actual, we have to determine whether he's referring to those who... uh, those who have professed, they're professing believers. And those, or, or is he talking to those who are actual believers? So the difference between professing believers and, and those who possess saving faith. There is a difference between actual believers who possess faith, saving faith, and apparent believers who are Who only profess faith in Christ. And because of the difficulty of this passage. We need to practice good interpretive skills when we come to places like this. And and what I mean by that is we have to look at the preponderance of the. The preponderance of the evidence. From passages of scripture that are more clear than this. And when we do that. When we look at and when we find those clearer passages, we're able to determine what it is and who it is that he's referring to. And when we do that, we understand that the writer is referring to the latter. He's referring to apparent believers who have only professed faith in Christ. He's not referring to actual believers who possess saving faith. Because we read from the majority of Scripture that saving faith is a gift and cannot be lost or taken away. We read that no one can snatch true believers from the hand of God. We read that the Lord Jesus is not going to lose one of those that the Father has given him. We read that nothing is going to separate the believer from the love of the Lord Jesus and the security of God. 
We read throughout scripture that what the Lord began, he's going to finish. And those he foreknew, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Those are clear passages of scripture and we rest in those. So we know he's not talking about actual believers, but those who, who are apparent. Who are only professing Christ. So we move on from there and we read, thirdly, that because the writer is referring to those who are not true believers, but only actual believers, that we have to determine what it is falling away is, and we have to know what what they're falling away from and what they're falling to. What is falling away? What are they falling away from? And what are they falling away to? And the answer is, basically, falling away is to move from belief to unbelief. It's, It's as simple as that. Like... And we have to go back and remember the last few arguments since chapter 2. He has been comparing those that he's writing to, to the nation of Israel back in the wilderness. So he's saying, just as the, uh, the Israelites had been redeemed out of Egypt, just as they had been baptized into Moses and through the Red Sea, uh, in Paul's words, in 1 Corinthians 10... Just as they had eaten the manna from heaven, just as they had followed the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and just as they had heard the voice of God from Mount Sinai, but did not enter into the promised land, he says, so are those who apostatize. Those who apostatize, those who are are apparent believers, those who are simply professing faith, may in fact have been catechized. They may in fact been baptized into the covenant community. They may have uh, been coming to the Lord's table. They may have been gifted and been used in ministry. They may have experienced signs and wonders. And all the while, they never possessed true faith, true saving faith. Because they never truly embraced and trusted in Christ, the one to to whom all those things pointed. And they fell away. They're poster children for what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And all of that is solidified in verses 7 and 8 because he gives an illustration that is very, very similar to, strikingly similar to the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. Same idea. And of course, the language suggests that this falling away was a decisive choice to break away. And in the case of those who would have been originally reading the letter, those who in fact did fall away would have been leaving their faith. As we've been talking all along, they would have left their faith and turned back to their Judaism. Which in essence, and I think we've said this as well, in essence it would have been saying... Well, they would have been denying the choice or they would have been completely denying Christ and his work as beneficial to them. Richard Phillips gives a a pretty good comparison 
He says, we have the example of Peter as one who did deny Jesus and yet came back to faith and was made the leading apostle. Set against him is the example of Judas Iscariot, who after long years in Jesus' company came to a decisive moment of apostasy. And then he says this, what was the difference between the two? One failed in his fidelity to Christ, as Christians will and often do, while the other decisively repudiated him. One did not live up to the cross, while the other despised it. It's a significant difference. It's the difference between possessing a weak faith and outright denial. And those are really Paul's words. He wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He said, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, we will all, he will also deny us. If we are faithful, faithless, he remains faithful. The bottom line is that falling away is tantamount to saying, I've tried Christ and found him wanting. Yes, Christ may have died, but he can't help me. I have no choice but to help myself. Whatever he did on the cross was not enough. Which leads us to the last point, the fourth one, and it's this. This is the exact reason why the writer says that it is impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. Because to do so would be to mock the Lord Jesus. Be mocking Christ. Mocking Him and His work. Those that fall away, treat Him as if what He did was just a waste of time. And really had no effect. And they do exactly what the Pharisees did and what, what Peter says. Um, I mean, they, they would have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Falling away is a blaspheme, blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. And, and Peter writes this. He said they, if, if he was describing them, he would say they escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but are again entangled in them and overcome. And the last state becomes worse than, for them than the first, for it would be better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it and to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It would have been better just to never hear it in the first place. It would have been better never to profess it. And we read this and we go, that's why it's the most terrifying. It's not hard to understand. So what I want to do as, as we close is I want to give us two or three implications and then I want to answer a question that may be on someone's mind. And, and these are, are my way of, of some things, of, of sharing what, some things that Richard Phillips kind of wrapped up his chapter on this passage with. The first implication is this. We need to remember that knowledge of the gospel isn't enough. We need to remember that intellectual or intellectually affirming the gospel is not enough. Professing our faith in Christ is not enough. Salvation is about possession of saving faith. It includes knowledge of personal knowledge and of and trust in Jesus. Secondly, we, we need to remember that the test of true saving faith is endurance. That's what we've been learning this whole time. 
The true test is endurance. Striving. It's a life of striving and resting and striving and resting. Particularly in these days. Particularly in times of suffering and pain and trial and temptation. Particularly in days like today. Days like today, in the midst of these circumstances that we find ourselves in, in the midst of the unknown, in the midst of, you know, when we come face to face with our mortality, and when we come face to face with, is this ever going to end? And we see that 10 years ago, there were only 8,000 cases, and this year there are 125,000 already, and what's it going to be like in 10? And, and it's easy to be overwhelmed. But the writer is saying the implications for us is that it's in the midst of these times that that we need to rest upon that foundation of our justification and sanctification and glorification. And we need to remember those doctrines that we've been taught and then we need to grow up into them. We need to learn more about them because we need to rest on them and trust in them in the midst of these circumstances. And then these circumstances become that by which our faith is tested. And found to be true and pure. And thirdly, we need to remember not only to or to not allow ourselves, but of course not allow our children to rest in our. We don't need to rest in our participation, and we don't need to allow them to rest in their participation in the outward administration of the covenant only. And what I mean is in. We, we, see, we saw the baptism earlier to, uh, tonight. And it's incumbent upon us with our children to not let them rest in the fact that they were baptized, therefore they are. Or they've come to the table, therefore they are. We need to make sure that we are pointing them toward, as I, as I said to Caleb and Moira, Pointing them toward, teaching them toward, praying them toward, and challenging them toward embracing the inward reality reality to which these point. Point them to Jesus. That's why we say we need to remember our baptism when we watch a baptism because we need to hear that as well. We need to rest in Christ and not in anything that we may have done. It's not a matter of the things that we do. It's not a matter of coming to worship. Who are we worshiping? Who has taken on our sin in our place? Who is perfectly obedient for us? In whom do we find our hope? It's in Him. And thankfully, He's given us these things. These sacraments to point us to Him. And to assure us. And I'll speak to that in a minute at the Lord's table. To assure us of our salvation. And that comes to the last question, quickly. The question that may be on someone's mind, of course, is... Can I be sure of my salvation? Can we be sure of salvation? And the answer is, of course, yes. It's a resounding yes. And the verses from 9 to 12 that we'll look at that uh, next week, he says just as much. But we're holding on to those until next week. But that doesn't mean that we can't leave tonight assured of our salvation. We can, in fact, be assured of that. And, and I want to help us in that. We can be sure of our salvation. We can have assurance But only if, as I've just mentioned, only if we look to Jesus. 
Only if we look to Him. He is the only one sufficient. He is the only one through whom our righteousness comes. He's the only one who has paid our debt on our behalf. It's not about our effort or our, our methods or our discipline. We are to look to Him. We are to see Him. We are to consider Him. We are to remember that more closely and pay attention more closely to that which we've heard. We've, it's, it's been right before us the last several weeks. And so in the day-to-day, in, in, again, in the midst of these uncertain times and the, in, in which so many struggle, it's a perfect opportunity for us to not be anxious, but to trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Serve Him with gladness. Remain immovable, steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Serving one another, serving our neighbor, not growing weary and doing good. In the midst of circumstances that are, that is, circumstances that are perpetuating fear in so many. We have the opportunity to testify to the Lord Jesus because we find ourselves safe in Him. Our trust is in Him. And even when we're weak and we stumble and we falter and we choose our sin over Him and we fail to trust Him, we don't have to throw up our hands and give up. But we also don't pick our own selves up by our bootstraps and dust ourselves off. When we fall and when we fail, we cry out to Him and He will lift us up. And then having lifted us up, in the words of Paul in Philippians 3... We forget what lies behind, strain forward to what lies ahead, and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, Paul says, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This virus can't take your salvation. Thanks be to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you now, by your Spirit, use...